So, one of our favorite footwear brands, Olakai, just got into the golf market and we are pumped. We already knew and loved these guys from their super comfy sandals. They're a Hawaiian-inspired brand. Olakai is actually two Hawaiian words, olu meaning comfort, kai meaning ocean, and now they are launching golf shoes. For golfers, they are bringing the exact same quality and comfort to the course, and it's in the form of spikeless shoes. So we were sent their classic leather golf shoe, absolutely beautiful shoe, by the way. The YLI was one of them, and we also got the more lightweight Kapalua. I personally loved how you can collapse the heel to make any of their shoes basically a slip-on. That is their signature drop-in technology, and I lean toward the Kapalua Poi Chorkel. So the thing about these is you can tell they were made for golfers like us. They really, really perform on the course, but you can also wear them off the course and no one can tell that you're wearing golf shoes because they don't have spikes, they're spikeless. Olukai designed their shoes to be comfortable right out of the box and to wear long after 18 holes. So next time you tee up, bring a little Aloha along with Olukai Golf. You can find them at olukai.com. From Stockholm, Sweden, please welcome Attica Sorenstam. In May of 2003, Vijay Singh, one of the great players of his generation, was near the height of his powers when he finished second at the Wachovia Championship. That's called the Wells Fargo now. It's the one down in Charlotte at Quail Hollow. And in his post-round interview on that Sunday, he talked about his play, his good week. And then he was asked about Annika Sorenstam. Why? Well, at the time, she was the number one women's player in the world. Some people think she became the all-time greatest player ever, ended up winning 72 events, 10 majors. She was the first woman to shoot a 59. The list goes on and on. But the reason VJ was asked about her is that a couple months earlier, she was offered a sponsor's exemption to play in a PGA Tour event as in a men's event. This was going to be at the Bank of America Colonial down in Fort Worth, Texas, of course, held at the famous Colonial Country Club. She was offered, she accepted, and that meant she was going to be the first woman to play on the PGA Tour in 58 years. Or at least they said 58 years. Mark that one down, we're going to come back to it. But in some ways, with this whole saga, the most interesting parts are the reactions. You know, across the spectrum, they run the gamut, and VJ, starting at that Wachovia Championship, was the most public, the most overt of anyone. First of all, he said, if I'm paired with her, I'm going to withdraw which is an easy thing to say because there are, you know, these drawings for groups are somewhat random. The likelihood that it would happen was vanishingly small. And my guess is, you know, after those quotes, if the infinitesimal odds came through at all and they were paired together in the draw, the PGA Tour would maybe just nudge him to a different group, don't you think? No reason to kindle that kind of controversy. But here was his quote that week at the Wachovia. He said, quote, What is she going to prove by playing? It's ridiculous. She's the best woman golfer in the world, and I want to emphasize woman. We have our tour for men, and they have their tour. She's taking a spot from someone in the field. End quote. And then if that wasn't enough, he said, and you almost have to laugh at this for just how emphatic it is, keeping in mind that this is not that long ago, it's only 20 years ago, he said, quote, I hope she misses the cut. Why? Because she doesn't belong out here. End quote. A few other players commented in that same negative vein. Nick Price said that the whole thing reeks of publicity. Scott Hoke, who had actually played with Sorenstam in a mixed team event, had a kind of strange quote where he said he hoped she played well so that people would realize how much separation there is between us and the ladies tour. 
He went on, quote, most guys hope she plays well. And what comes out of this is that she realizes she can't compete against the men. End quote. And not all reactions are like this. Some were positive. Phil Mickelson said, you know, guys who are having a tough time with this are thinking this is the men's tour. It's not. It's the best tour for the best players. Kind of funny that he said that about the PGA Tour, considering recent events. That's neither here nor there, though. But it sounds like, you know, most men were either neutral or cautious, you know, don't want to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole. But at least for me, you get the sense this is not the most welcoming environment. Now, I think Vijay Singh's logic is interesting. The idea that she is taking somebody's spot. It's almost like he's saying, you know, look, I'm not being sexist. It's about fairness. This isn't right. Somebody's losing out because of her. But I want you to remember, this is a sponsor's exemption. The year I covered the most PGA Tour events, 2014, I was out there almost every week. I remember the Byron Nelson in Dallas that year. There was a 17-year-old from Texas who got an exemption to play. It was kind of this novelty. His name was Scotty Scheffler. Yeah, you knew it was going to be someone famous, right? And he actually made the cut. He finished 22nd, but he didn't earn his spot in that field. This was a sponsor's exemption, too. And if you know anything about sponsor's exemptions, they don't go to the next person in line, right? They go to who the sponsor wants to play. That could be someone who endorses their product, right? One of their clients, somebody who's going to bring eyeballs to the event. For example, Michael Block, after his incredible performance at the PGA Championship. As I record this, he's playing at Colonial. He's going to be playing at the Canadian Open. The people running those tournaments thought, hey, we're not in an elevated event. This guy is a draw. Let's get him in there. And the point is that sponsors' exemptions are not a meritocracy. I personally have never heard of a tournament who gave them out to the first and second alternate. That's not how it works. So Soren Stim at the Colonial is no different than Scheffler, no different than Michael Block. She's not actually taking anyone's spot except another sponsor's exemption, and that hypothetical person didn't earn his way in either. Nobody complained about Scheffler that I heard back in 2014. I'm not hearing anyone complain about Block. People are pretty excited about it. And I bet if you looked at Vijay Singh's history, there's probably not a lot of examples of him complaining about other sponsor exemptions. The only difference with Annika Sorenstam is that, of course, she is a woman. Now, the point of this podcast is not to go around shouting sexist at people. You know, that would be boring. That would be repetitive. It's not why we're here. We're here to talk about the six times in history when a woman has played on the PGA Tour. And actually, I shouldn't say six times. I should say six women. Four of those women did it one time. Michelle Wee and Babe Diedrichson Zaharias did it multiple times, but it's a rare thing. And I bring up VJ and all the others because in many cases, there is this sense of hostility. If that ends up being too strong a word, forgive me, but that's how it reads. And you start looking at this stuff. By the way, May 19th was the 20 year anniversary of Annika Sorensen playing in that colonial. But you look at this stuff and you can't avoid the conclusion that this is not peachy keen between all the players, you know? Everyone starts with good intentions and bad feeling almost inevitably, not 100% of the time, but almost inevitably starts creeping in and starts getting in the way. And you're left with this complicated idea that what might have been a fairly innocent kind of concept, you know, we get a woman to play on the PGA Tour, it features her, features her tour, maybe it's good cross-promotion, if nothing else, it's interesting and we can all enjoy it, but it gets spoiled along the way, and you can't talk about it without talking about the reactions, the hostility. And there's an interesting irony there, which is that the oldest instance of this, first person to ever do it, was Babe Didrikson Zaharias. 
maybe you think about history and you think, oh, we've made progress. And wow, if VJ is saying this in 2003, how much worse were things back then? In fact, Babe Diedrichsen seems to have been incredibly popular, at least in the golf world. Not that she didn't meet a great deal of sexism on her own. She absolutely did. But Charles McGrath, writing in the New York Times, said that perhaps only one person at the time was more beloved by galleries, and that person was Arnold Palmer. That's pretty high praise right there. But it seems to have gone a little downhill since then with this very rare phenomenon of women playing on the PGA Tour. And again, if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about it honestly. And the honest truth is that you can look at it a number of ways. You can say it's a credit to golf that they've done it, that they've tried. It's a credit to the women who played. Many men also deserve credit, at least in my eyes. But writ large, this also brings out some demons. And it paints professional golf in a way that is not, to say the least, always very flattering. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. As we said today, we are examining this interesting little nook in the history of professional golf where the women play with the men on the PGA Tour. It's been 20 years since Annika Sorensen played for the one and only time at Colonial. She missed the cut that week. And there was a lot of coverage there. And saying a lot is an understatement. The media room at the Colonial was absolutely jam-packed. 300 reporters, you know, photographers. The course itself was jammed and everybody was following her. Kenny Perry, who actually went on to win that tournament, he kind of called it beforehand. He said, she's going to have Tiger Woods' media. I'm anxious to see how she handles that. I don't think she really knows what she's getting into. Tiger himself had incredible foresight. He said, quote, it would be fairer if she could play four or five tournaments. Then you could judge on those results and she'll get on a roll. In one tournament, a lot can go wrong for her, end quote. That would turn out to be pretty accurate too. There's another angle here, which is how did the LPGA golfers feel? And it seems like most of them were supportive publicly, but one, Angela Stanford, wrote a first-person piece in Sports Illustrated where basically she said that it was bad for the women's game. Here's what she wrote, quote, the reality is that the LPGA will be labeled as a result of her play at the Colonial, and that's a no-win situation for us. If she plays well, people will think she's too good for the rest of us on the tour, and that she should play at least part-time on the PGA Tour. If she misses the cut, then people will decide that the only reason she dominates our tour is because the rest of us stink. End quote. That is an interesting black-and-white perspective, which I think was proven wrong in the end, but... She went on to write, I admire Annika for challenging that idea, but there are physical limitations to being a woman. That will be laid bare when she tees it up in front of the world at the Colonial. And you have to imagine Sorenstam reads that and thinks, gee, thanks for the support, Angela. This also brought some real beauties out of the woodwork. Armstrong Williams, who is a political commentator on the right, went on with Wolf Blitzer on CNN, and he said things like, a mediocre high school male could dominate the LPGA, showing exactly how much he knew about golf. Charles Barkley even said she didn't belong. Sally Jenkins, writing in the Washington Post, made a fascinating point that as far as she could tell, outside of the golf world, there weren't that many women living and dying with this thing. They didn't really care how Sorensen did, but it seemed vitally important for the men. She wrote, quote, What's interesting about this week's Colonial is the stakes are high for men, not women. If Sorensen makes the cut, all of Smith College won't go running into the quad screaming, as they did the night in 1973 when Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs in straight sets, 
Back then, it seemed vitally important that the top-ranked female tennis player in the world be the taunting 55-year-old man. Now it's the guys, or at least a certain sour segment of them, who have a vested interest in Sorenstam's performance. And their champions are Price, who openly ejects to her presence, and Singh, who is publicly rooted for her to fail. End quote. So, the week of the Colonial comes. Laura Neal, who was with the LPGA at the time, wrote a diary this week. And keep in mind, you know, she's working for the LPGA, so she's telling one side of this. But she does a very good job of the details, and a couple moments stick out. Sorenstam was, by more than just Neal's account, incredibly relieved after her first drive when she hit it into the fairway on Thursday. She was 73rd after a 1 over 71 that first day. Missed only one fairway the whole round, and actually had a ton of birdie chances but couldn't convert. And on Friday, it was actually her putting that let her down. Uh, she ended up finishing 96. She shot a 74 that day. And there's a moment from Neil's diary that sticks out, and it comes afterward when Sorenstam has a phone call with Ty Vota, who's the LPGA commissioner. And apparently, while she's on the phone, whatever he says to her, she breaks down. She gets choked up. All the emotion just comes out of her. And it's at that moment when you realize exactly what she did there. Even when you read it now, you realize that. This wasn't exactly fun for her. Her two playing partners, Aaron Barber and Dean Wilson, were incredibly complimentary. I'm sure they were chosen, you know, for that job. The crowds were very good. But she put herself in the position by accepting this invitation to be a poster child, essentially, for the entire women's game. And here she is, all by herself, being judged... The women's game is being judged through her. Imagine that. Imagine feeling like you have your entire gender on your shoulders. That if you fail, you know, all the ghouls are going to come out of the woodwork and say, I told you so, these women can't play like the men. You know, that's an outrageous amount of pressure. I mean, think of what she had to lose. What if she had shot an 80, right? First woman in 50 plus years to do this. I think under those circumstances, you know, she had mentioned that when she gets nervous, she loses the touch in her short game, especially her putty. Well, she was nervous the entire time. And, you know, considering all that, 71-74 is very good. And whatever you think of her now in the present day, you know, I know politics has gotten into her image and that comes with its usual divisions and polarizations. But I think we can all appreciate, looking back at that week, the toughness it took to do what she did. And I think it says so much that even though this is obviously an incredibly competitive person, Sorenstam. You know, she came close to making the cut and it wasn't length that hurt her. You know, it wasn't strength or not being masculine enough. It was the putting. You think maybe, you know, someone like that would get the bit in her teeth and want to try again because obviously she can do it. She can make the cut. Might even be able to do better than making the cut. But it says so much that she never did it again. She gave that experience at Colonial a lot of credit for increasing her competitive toughness helping her win majors later, but she said, quote, I wanted to challenge myself and didn't think I needed to do it one more time, end quote. And why would she, right? I mean, she did herself proud, but it had to be a miserable experience in many ways. And just for posterity, we go back to Vijay Singh for his quote after the colonial. You almost have to tip your cap for how perfectly he kind of puts his foot in his mouth here. He says, Quote, it was not an attack on Annika, and if it was, it was not put that way. I actually said that if I missed the cut, I'd rather see her miss the cut as well. I don't want to go back and know that a woman beat me. End quote. Thank you, VJ. Now, let's go back to the question of why in 2003, why Annika, why the Colonial, why then? 
Well, there are a lot of people who believe the impetus to get her into a PGA Tour event actually started the previous fall, September 2002, at the Connecticut PGA Championship. This was a tournament for club pros, PGA members, and one of the benefits of winning is that you get a spot in the Greater Hartford Open the next year. That's a PGA Tour event. And it just so happens that the winner of the event that year was a woman, 36 years old, named Susie Whaley. And the catch here is that she played different tees from the men. So for her, the course was 6,239 yards. For the men, it was 6,938, difference of about 700 yards, you know, not insignificant. And she won by two shots. So arguably, you know, maybe it makes a really big difference there. And because of her, the PGA made the so-called Whaley rule that they instituted the very next year, which is that anyone who plays a qualifying event like this has to play off the same tees. But 2002, Whaley wins. And if you recognize that name, it might be because Susie Whaley later went on to become the first woman president of the PGA of America. This was just a couple years ago. She started in 2018. I interviewed her for a book I was writing about the Ryder Cup. I found her to be an impressive person, a nice person. Obviously, she earned the respect of her peers to win election to secretary, which is a position that feeds into the presidency. And she has a talent for breaking new ground in this sport. So... When she won that PGA Championship 2002, she had a choice to make, which was, do you accept it and everything that comes with it, you know, everything we talked about with Annika, or do you say it's not worth the stress? Keep in mind, Whaley, you know, she was a college golfer at UNC Chapel Hill. She spent a couple years on the LPGA Tour, but she's not the same caliber of Annika Sorenstam, and the odds that she makes a cut at a PGA Tour event are very, very slim. But she talked to her old sports psychologist. She talked to her husband, Bill, who is the GM at TPC River Highlands, where the Greater Hartford Open was being played. And though she did have some concerns about her length, in December, she decided to accept the invitation. And an interesting side note here, she actually saw Annika Sorenstam at a photo shoot in Florida, and Sorenstam was encouraging. Said, you know, go for it. From Farmington, Connecticut, the Connecticut section PGA champion, Susie Whaley. There were letters uh, that were horrific and verbiage that was scary and things that I had to worry about my family and our safety uh, in regards to just because I was participating in an event um, that was men and that I wasn't supposed to be there. Now, you may have heard the phrase history rhymes. It's interesting to me that Susie Whaley later in life became the first woman president of the PGA of America, but did not get to serve during a Ryder Cup. That was because of COVID. All presidents serve two-year terms, so she got unlucky in that regard. And here, when she qualifies to be the first woman in 50-plus years to play in a PGA Tour event, well, yeah, she's going to play in that event, which was happening in late July 2003. But it turns out that Soren Sam is going to beat her to the punch. So in both cases, she accomplishes something historic, but in both cases, something gets taken away through no fault of her own. And how that happens is a little murky in the details and the finer details. But not long after Whaley says, okay, I'm going to play, that's December 2002, Sorenstam gets the invite to play herself, and she accepts the next February. When she does, the Colonial jumps at the chance, and all of a sudden the world number one golfer is going to be breaking that 50-year drought before Susie Whaley. Very little has been written about this decision, where it came from, it seems to be acknowledged that Whaley making the Greater Hartford Open is what spawned all this, but we're left to speculate as to exactly why. 
And there are a couple reasons if, you know, we're just chatting here, we're just speculating, that makes sense. So first off, you can look at it in the not selfish, but self-centered way. Like, okay, you're the LPGA and you want to showcase your game as best as possible. You don't necessarily want a woman who is not even on your tour getting the lion's share of publicity because she might not do very well. In fact, Whaley did okay. She shot 75-78 playing from the men's teams, which is, again, I think pretty incredible under the circumstances. But at 13 over, she was well off the pace, close to last place. The cut was around even. So maybe it's image control. The idea that if Annika goes first, the women's game is putting its best foot forward. And maybe people don't really notice Whaley as much later. Now, on the more positive side of things, maybe they were protecting Whaley for similar reasons. Making sure, you know, she's not the one with 300 reporters and cameras flashing in her face and a, you know, five deep gallery and all that. And doesn't have to face people questioning whether she deserved it because of how she played on shorter tees and everything that went into it. If either of those things is true, what we can say is that it worked. It was not as big a deal when Whaley played nowhere close. Which meant that, unlike Sorenstam, it was more or less a pleasant experience for her. Her playing partners were nice, the galleries are great, and this mother of two, who represents a lot of things that are great about golf, was seen as a heartwarming story. She didn't have the bright spotlight on her that brings with it so much negativity. So a story that starts off looking like Sorensen maybe stole her thunder, ends up looking more like Sorensen took the bullet for her. Whaley got in her slipstream, and you know basically there's a lot of flack you don't have to take when you go second. Sorenstam and Whaley were the third and fourth women ever to play on the PGA Tour. The fifth was Michelle Wee. It wasn't even a year after Sorenstam played that Wee, who was then 14 years old, was given a sponsor's exemption to the Sony Open in Hawaii. Now, if you're a little bit younger listening to this, you might not remember or you might not know what a big deal Michelle Wee was when she was young. She was basically christened as the next big thing. And you have to remember the context here which is that the last time a young Asian American golfer from the West, you know, we was from Hawaii, was proclaimed to be the next superstar, it came true. That was Tiger Woods just a few years earlier. And in that sense, maybe we is something of a cautionary tale. She had a fine career. She won the US Open. She seems happy now. But the career doesn't match the incredible hype that attended her when she was a kid. And to be fair, she was incredibly good when she was a kid. That week at the Sony Open, 14 years old, she missed the cut by one shot. Shot a 68 in the second round. Beat 47 of the men who were in the field, the male professional golfers. I think when you look at the context, her age, the strength of the field, it is probably the single most remarkable showing ever by a woman on the PGA Tour, bar none. Yeah, she did actually make a cut on the Asian Tour in 2006, but even though she had eight tries on the PGA Tour, which is a record... That first tournament when she was 14, that was as close as she came. She ended up winning five LPGA Tour events. She won the major I mentioned, the U.S. Open. But I think when you look at the breadth of her career and the incredible weight of expectation that was placed on somebody so young, it's not so surprising that she never quite lived up to that. You know, it proves that Tiger Woods is the anomaly here. I think we is more the standard issue story because no matter how good you are, as a little kid, things change. Injuries and bad luck happen. It's very hard to live up to that. 
And, you know, I don't mean to editorialize here, but it doesn't seem particularly that kids are meant to be put under that kind of pressure. You know, we struggled with her mental health, with anxiety. She had lots of injuries. She was always trying to play through this stuff because her understanding was, I need to have this warrior mindset, never quit. And now she's all but retired from the sport and she's 33 years old. So if you're someone who wants to say, you know, this woman didn't belong in a PGA Tour event, I might agree with you in this case, but for different reasons. Good example of this came in 2006 when she collapsed from heat exhaustion and had to be taken off the course on a gurney in a PGA Tour event. Mike Bianchi of the Orlando Sentinel wrote the following. He wrote, quote, We has tried five times to make a PGA Tour cut and she has failed five times. And this is why she should stop immediately because we are going to start using words like fail and fizzle to describe a tremendously talented 16-year-old golfer. Shouldn't she at least go to her first prom before we begin to dance on her grave? End quote. But if there's one thing you can say about Wee's appearances, it's that while they did attract their share of people with negative responses, it was a lot more muted and a lot more accepted what she was doing. And I think you have to say that's a tribute to Sorenstam again. She took the heat as the first person to do it. And after her, after she ends that long drought, it's never going to be as big a deal again. Which might be a good time to segue into the sixth woman to ever play in a PGA Tour event. It was funny, you know, Conrad and all of us were talking about, you know, we don't know if there's ever been an LPGA player playing in a men's event have three birdies in a row. So uh, obviously I was trying to keep the streak going to maybe uh, set a new record of some sort, but um, that was pretty cool. You know, just to, to make any birdies out there yesterday, I only had one. So to make five today in an eagle, uh, that was pretty cool. I think I ended pretty well. That's Brittany Lincecum who in 2018 played at the Barbasol, which is one of those alternate events played during a major, in this case, the Open Championship at Carnoustie was that week. And I don't know about you, but when I started researching this podcast, I had a vague memory of this happening, but very, very vague. In fact, I had completely forgotten it and could only just barely dredge up any recollection at all when I read that Lincecum had done this. And I mention that because doesn't it say a lot? I mean, I cover this sport. And it just didn't register for me at all, this thing that happened five years ago. And part of that, of course, is because you had a major going on, no doubt, that same week. And the reason they invited her was maybe to get some eyes on this event. But part is just time passing, attitudes changing. Nobody at this point was writing a column saying, keep these women off the tour, she doesn't belong there. None of the players were anything but positive. The coverage you can go back and read is all positive. And really, it's just a blip on the radar. She shot an opening 78. Then came back with a 71, missed the cut, finished fifth from last. But again, this was almost like, you know, nothing happened. When you talk about missed cuts, there is only one woman in the history of golf who has ever made a cut. And that is Babe Diedrichson, sometimes known as Babe Diedrichson Zaharias. She actually met her husband at one of these PGA Tour events she played in. He was a professional wrestler. And she might be one of the most interesting American athletes ever. Maybe one of the most interesting people ever. And the prospect of covering everything she did, even just in golf, is too daunting for an episode like this where we're focusing on a number of people. She deserves her own episode, her own full episode. And believe it or not, we did that. Dedicated a full local knowledge podcast to her 1954 U.S. Women's Open win. You can look that up. Suffice it to say for now, this is someone who, when you read her Wikipedia page or, you know, the lines of her resume... It almost sounds ridiculous. It almost sounds too outrageous to believe. She's everywhere all at once, and she can do everything. 
Babe Didrikson was born in Port Arthur, Texas, one of these mythic figures, you know, who, who kind of burnishes her own legend. She says that she was called Babe because she hit five home runs in a baseball game as a kid, but it may actually be because her mother, who was Norwegian, called her, I think, Bebe is the word from the time she was young. But she grows up to be, pound for pound, I think probably the best woman athlete ever, and an enormous celebrity, too, for her time. Her national profile kicked into high gear when she won a gold medal at the Los Angeles Olympics in 1932 in the hurdles and the javelin throw. She got a silver in the high jump, which was only because they said her technique was illegal in the finals. She broke four world records in the process. She was also a tremendous basketball player who won AAU championships. She dominated track and field in the AAU. She was so good at baseball that she pitched in spring training games against the men and three out of the four innings she pitched were scoreless. And oh, by the way, she was a phenomenal diver, a roller skater, a bowler, a tennis player, and a champion seamstress, too. That's true. She won a title at a state fair. And I'm not done. She could sing. She could play harmonica. She recorded songs for Mercury Records and had a lot of success at that. Babe Diedrichsen is larger than life. You couldn't make her up if you tried. And about her athleticism, Grantland Rice, one of the great sports writers of the day, he wrote this about her. He said, quote, She is beyond all belief until you see her perform. Then you finally understand that you are looking at the most flawless section of muscle harmony, of complete mental and physical coordination the world of sports has ever seen. End quote. Her best sport was golf somehow. She didn't pick it up until she was about 24. She was immediately great. No shock there. But she couldn't get amateur status right away, so one of the things she did was she played on the PGA Tour. She missed the cut at the 1935 Cascades Open, withdrew from the 1937 Chicago Open, and then missed the cut at the LA Open in 1938, which, by the way, apparently all she had to do to enter that event was fill out an application. She managed to get her amateur status back in 1942, and meanwhile was completely dominating the women's circuit. She became a founding member of the LPGA Tour. She won 10 majors, won a slew of amateur events, and in 1945, she entered and made the cut at the LA Open, the Phoenix Open, and the Tucson Open, all on the PGA Tour. The only woman ever to accomplish that feat, and she did it three times. Now, as you could imagine, she faced a huge degree of sexism. There were people like Joe Williams of the New York World-Telegram who said, quote, it would be much better if she and her ilk stayed at home, got themselves prettied up, and waited for the phone to ring. End quote. And he wasn't some anomaly, Joe Williams. He wasn't alone in saying this kind of thing. It was far more mainstream then. You know, he didn't lose his job for writing it, right? But at the golf tournaments, everything you read now indicates that the galleries absolutely loved her. This was a person, you have to understand, who was incredibly confident, spilling over into cocky, uh, you know, here's an excerpt from the LA Times on her attitude at golf events. They wrote, quote, Humility was not something Zaharias practiced. While she had the talent of Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, she also possessed the ostentatiousness of Charles Barkley and the cockiness of Joe Namath. There was also a bit of P.T. Barnum in her. She was known for telling other players before the start of tournaments, Okay, babe's here, now who's going to finish second? Or trying to psych out competitors by asking them, You always hold your putter like that? End quote. And that behavior turned some people off, some of her competitors. 
But the fans loved her, loved her style. She would laugh and joke with them. She was a huge draw for the LPGA Tour. In that LA Times article, there are people quoted who say the only reason the LPGA survived in the early days was because of her. She was a consummate entertainer. As her biographer Susan Califf said, quote, she was a singularly self-confident woman. Her goal was the front page, end quote. There's an account in the Tucson newspaper from 1945. It ran the year that she made the cut in that PGA Tour event, written by a woman named Nancy Lunsford. She was a golf novice herself, a spectator, and she wrote, quote, The gallery seemed partial to Babe Dietrichson Zaharias, the feminine athletic hotshot, and followed her around all afternoon. She wore a blue skirt, magenta blouse, and loose sleeveless gray sweater. Her eyes were shaded with a pork pie hat, and she seemed quite friendly and casual, end quote. She is larger than life, and of course, she's the only woman to make the cut. Who else could it be? In 1955, she had a recurrence of cancer, could only play eight times that year, but in her last two events, she won both of them. Mrs. Zaharias has the crown wrapped up. Just 18 months ago, she underwent an operation for cancer. Everyone said her career was over, but here she is winning by a mile, a margin of 12 strokes with a score of 291, one of the most inspiring comebacks in all sports history. But the cancer got worse, and the next year she passed away in Galveston, Texas at age 45. Now, what's the opposite of larger than life? You may have noticed that we've talked about five women who have played on the PGA Tour. There is a sixth. Her name is Shirley Spork and she played at the 1952 Northern California Reno Open. Now, if you're a careful listener, you might be thinking, wait a minute. Annika Sorensen played in 2003, and they said it was 58 years since the last woman had played on the PGA Tour. 1952 is only 51 years earlier. Well, that's right. They also said Sorensen was the first woman to play since World War II. There are also plenty of accounts, even now, that say that only five women have played on the PGA Tour. No, there are six. And in all of this, the forgotten person is Shirley Spork. She missed the cut that week, and there was a newspaper columnist who wrote this about her. Quote, We hope the women wouldn't enter and be embarrassed when left far behind. Well, Shirley Spork entered, and she finished dead last in the field. Her 318 total was 47 strokes behind Dutch Harrison's winning 271. That's an average of almost 12 strokes per round off the pace. Miss Spork isn't the tops in her field, but it is still doubtful that even Louise Suggs, Betsy Rawls, Babe Zaharias, Betty Jameson, or Patty Berg could pick up caddy feeds in golf winnings by playing against the men. They play wonderful golf for women. Let it go at that. End quote. She never played again, but Shirley Spork was one of those people who spent her whole life in golf, did a lot for the game, finished second at the 1962 LPGA Championship, was recognized as the LPGA Teacher of the Year twice, and listen to the years when that happened. One was 1959, the other was 1984. She lived to be 94 years old. She died last April. She was a coach. She was an educator at Bowling Green. She was one of the 13 founders of the LPGA Tour. She worked at the National Golf Foundation. She started her own tournament, where proceeds benefited the Eastern Michigan University Women's Golf Program. And finally, late in life, she was inducted into the inaugural LPGA Hall of Fame class. 
To put it mildly, she was integral. She was one of the most important women ever in her sport. And like a lot of the other women we've talked about, she didn't deserve to be ridiculed, to be lectured, to be mocked by the people who didn't understand what she was doing and had no empathy. Even now, her legacy is blurred. People forget that she was one of these six women who played in a PGA Tour event. And what we'd say to Shirley today is that even though we've probably given you short shrift too, summed up a life of 94 years in a few sentences, wherever you are, we can tell you that you are not forgotten here. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our song for today was Dancing on the Sofa by Lobo Loco. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got two others for you to check out too. Golf Digest weekly podcast, The Loop, and the brand new podcast on golf instruction with Luke Curdenine that's called Golf IQ. You can subscribe to them both. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great day.